Chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And there he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to depart from Rome. Paul approached them, and because he worked at the same trade, he stayed with them and worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. He addressed both Jews and Greeks in the synagogue every Sabbath, attempting to persuade them. Corinth was the capital of the Roman providence of Acacia, which we kind of know as Greece today. And it was a Roman colony. It was about 50 miles southwest of Athens. And Corinth was about 20 times as large as Athens. At this time, with a population of more than 200,000 inhabitants, the city was infamous for its immorality, which issued from two sources, its numerous transients and its temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of love, and her devotees worshipped her through drunkenness and sex, and her temple had 1,000 religious prostitutes. You need to understand that everywhere you go in Greece, sexual orgies is a huge part of worshipping the gods and the goddesses. Imagine what would be involved with worshipping the goddess of love and seduction. This temple prostitutes were huge in the ancient world, going all the way back into the Canaanites and all that kind of stuff. And one temple to have 1,000 prostitutes is a big, big deal. And the way that, and and remember, this is all public and out in the open. This is what they called righteousness. I mean, yes, we have a lot of that today in America, but most people, though the tide might be changing, would say that that's not okay. And I don't want my people in my family to be involved in that. Even if they say, like, well, that's okay if they want to do that with their life, we still would say, I would not be happy if my children got involved in that. But in the ancient world, in this time, it was called righteousness. It was a privilege to be considered that. Um, Now, it still brought all the same darkness and brokenness and emotional and social and brokenness that it brings today. It's just they would call it okay. This is what Paul's encountering. And, and, and now in and Corinth. And, and one of the things that also brings a depravity is Corinth is a, uh, a port, and it was, it's like the pirate movies, where they go into port and it's just drunken and winches and that kind of stuff. Corinth was bad. And if you've ever really seriously read the letters of Corinthians, if the Christians were acting like that, imagine the people. And that was one of the things that Paul was dealing with as different God, different way of worshiping. And the Christians were really struggling with like, if I worship gods through sex, then isn't that how I would worship Jesus? And that's a lot of what Paul was dealing with. And that shows you how deeply ingrained that is in our mind. Like when, when, when we convert people to Christianity, it's not really hard for people who convert to realize, oh, I shouldn't be sexually promiscuous anymore. I shouldn't get drunk anymore. Not that, that it goes away instantaneously, not that there's going to be a struggle, but they already knew that was wrong because even though not everybody in America is Christian, we kind of have a Judeo-Christian kind of morality that's kind of as an undercurrent in our culture of what right and wrong is. And so it's not hard for them to understand that, but if you have a Christian that converts and they're like, wait a minute, I can't worship Christ through orgies anymore? Um, that just shows you how deeply ingrained this is and their way of thinking. And so this is what Paul is going to. And with each bigger city comes a greater sense of darkness, a greater sense of immorality. 
that you and I have never ever been in. Uh, I mean, unless you've gone to some other country where you've gone to some port of like maybe Haiti with the voodooism or um, the Cuba and that kind of stuff, um, but not like this. And and I know people are like, America is getting bad and da 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 da, and I don't disagree with that. Um, but I think a lot of times people point to like, it must be the end of the world. It's getting really bad. Da, da, da. It's like, if you think this is an end of the world, you'd be freaking out if you lived during that time period. And it wasn't anywhere close to the end of the world then, right? Because it's been more than 2,000 years since then. I just don't think as Americans we have a, a good grasp on how evil we really can. I mean, we have World War II, right? And the Nazis and that. But we're like, even that's like, most Germans weren't like that, okay? We don't have really this sense of a universally, righteously accepted approval of just absolute depravity and evil flowing through your lives and your worldview, um, like Paul is seeing right now in the Roman world. And so this is what he's coming to. And there he met Quill and Priscilla, who lived in Corinth because they had to leave their home. Now, the Roman writer Suetonius referred to an edict by Emperor Claudius of this time period ordering non-Roman citizens, Jews, to leave Rome because they had become continuous disturbance in the city. And he dated this expulsion between 49 and 50 AD. We're told that Aquila and Priscilla are living in Corinth because they are one of those Jewish, non-Roman citizen um, people who lived in Rome who have been kicked out by a national edict. And so now they're here and they're going to cross paths with Paul as he begins to do the same thing he normally does, go to the synagogue first, where there are Greek proselytes or God-fearers along with the Jews there and preach to them first. And he ends up meeting them, we're told, because he worked as a tent maker. Paul, everywhere he seems to go, seems to be doing the trade of a tent maker. This doesn't seem to be a job that, well, you really have no idea. Like, how many hours a week did he work as a tent maker versus how many hours did he preach? I think we get this idea that these people were just standing in the streets all day long, just preaching and that kind of stuff. And we don't realize that a lot of them had jobs. Like, Aquila and Priscilla are missionaries, and they've got jobs as tent makers. Paul does. And one of the reasons that Paul most likely was a tent maker was one, I think he would want to show that he is a, a, a productive contributor to the society and that he is not just there to just kind of wander around. I mean, even if we just saw somebody who didn't work all day and just kind of stood around and preached, there's kind of a little suspect there. Now, I know that we're talking about some pastors and that kind of stuff, but we would all agree that pastors do a lot of work and they're heavily involved. And even that image feels a little bit different than just standing there and just preaching all day on some street corner. And I'm not knocking that. I'm not saying that that's wrong or bad in any kind of way. But I know people who've done that, and I know people have looked at them and thought, well, of course, I would like to have the free time to just sit around and do something like that too, right? And that's not true, but that's how people would interpret it. And people have interpreted that. And so Paul probably is trying to show himself as a um, productive society. It could be that he also just likes really doing it and wants to work with his hands and needs some variety in your life. Even me, I love teaching, but I don't want to just stand all day every day for 
50-something years of my life teaching nonstop. So there needs to be more variety. But the other thing is to make money. He probably wants no desire or wants no impression that he's a freeloader, that he's just like getting food and shelter from people without contributing in any kind of way, just expecting people to donate him. And probably there's a lot of little extra costs here, and donations are great, but if he doesn't have to depend upon the donations, if he doesn't look like he's just freeloading off of people, then the gospel becomes much more powerful. And I think even as we do missions today, we um, make sure that we get people supporting us financially from our local churches so that when we send them out into other communities, they're not dependent upon those people. Although if those people wanted to willing to contribute, they can but we're not going to the people. We're not sending them to people to preach to them and expecting those people to provide donations for them. That presents a very different image than my people at home who had the same beliefs and are the same family of me, spiritually speaking, are supporting me. And that's not up to you. And I think there's, there's a powerful message there that I'm not coming to you and expecting you to give me money as I preach the gospel. And there's just so many negative connotations that can come with him not having a job and not making money. And so he meets them in this work, and that's how they meet each other, because there's probably certain parts of the city that were regulated to the tent maker. He doesn't want to be seen as a con artist. He also probably didn't want to get caught up in the local patronage. It was not uncommon. Now, see, for us, we have no problem saying, hey, my local church is supporting me, and my local church supports me, and I go out and do, do missions, and I come back, and that's it. Because we don't live in a culture where a local church has strings attached, where, hey, we're the church that gave money to you, and we, we, you, you belong to us, and you say only what we wanted to say. Now, granted, there would be a little bit of scrutiny. We don't want them going out and being her heretics and like, like, oh, I don't care if you're a heretic. We'll still support you, right? But there's no, like... There's a difference between saying we expect you to at least be in alignment with our faith and then like you go where I want you to go and you dress the way I want you to dress and, and you, hey, there's these people over here and they, we, we, we were, we're connected and we're business partners and I want you there. Oh, you're affecting the business over here so I don't want you over there. That's a lot different. And the patronage thing was not uncommon for people to find a patronage as an artist, a musician, or what that kind of stuff. But then you're owned by them. And we talked about an honor-shame culture, a debt-oriented culture, where you're in people's pockets, and they own you, and you owe them. And there's no way that Paul wants that connected to the gospel in any kind of a way. And so it is absolutely necessary for him to do this on multiple levels. Now, Silas and Timothy seem to have stayed back in Athens and then would rejoin him later um, in the trip as he would go through. Verse 5, Now then Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, and Paul became wholly absorbed with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he protested by shaking out his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am guiltless. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul would leave the synagogue and went to the, houses, went to the house of a person named Titus Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Paul would preach until he was no longer accepted 
by the Jews. And then he would walk away. And he would shake the dust off of his feet. And he would move on. Now, if you were here for the Gospels, or you've watched The Chosen, um, this is a common practice of this time period. And this is the idea of basically saying, you've rejected me, and I do not want anything of you to cling to me, so to speak, and so I'm going to knock the dust off my feet. And it's not as insulting as what we might interpret it. Like, if somebody came in your house and was just like clinking their feet and walking away, we, that, we would feel like maybe that was a backward flip you off kind of a thing, right? Um, but that, that just was part of the culture. Remember dirt and sandals was a big part of their, their world, washing their feet and that kind of stuff. And basically is saying is, I'm walking away and I'm not coming back. Don't expect me to return. And in some ways, it was a mutual thing because they would probably be like, good riddance. I didn't like you anyways. This is what Paul's doing. Is, but what he's doing is making it very clear that you rejected it. I'm walking away because you rejected me. You rejected the gospel. Therefore, you're under the judgment. And then he would go to the Gentiles. Now, once again, this is not a permanent move. And I, I had to keep saying this because there's so many people who every time they read, he goes to the Gentiles. They want to immediately interpret this as, well, Paul is completely rejecting the Jews. He's damning them to hell. There's no room for them to ever be preached to or accept Christ again. It's now the Gentiles dead to the Jews. There is no place for the Jews in the church anymore. And that's a very common view among a lot of Christians. And it's like, if you really believe them, then why does he keep going to the Jews over and over and over again? Like, let's look at the pattern here. And so if you feel like I'm beating a dead horse with that, I am because, one... I know what it's like to be my audio to be sampled out. <laughs> and so if I say it enough times, then hopefully it's harder for me to be sampled out um, and for people to say. There's nothing worse than being sampled out, and you're like, I didn't say that. Um, he goes on to the house of Titus Justus, and he's a Gentile who worships God. And Crispus, the president of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with the entire household, and many of the Corinthians who heard about it believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul, by a vision in the night, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not be silent, because I am with you, and no one will assault you or to harm you, because I have many people in this city. So he stayed there, and a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. That's a long time to be in Corinth. And that means his ministry was successful enough that he was able to stay that long. I mean, how many cities have we seen where Paul has driven out or beaten or imprisoned and he has to flee or God tells him to move on? And so he stays there. The Greeks, it seems like. Or a mixture. So he seemed to go back and forth because as we're told that he left the, the Jews, the synagogues, and went to the other guy, the Greek, we're also told, but also the head of the synagogue happened to convert to Christianity too, which means maybe he was invited back to that synagogue from that point on. And so it's just hard to know the chronology right now of things. But what it does show you, what I think is significant here, is we have not really seen a whole lot of powerful, influential, elite Jewish people, except Christ. We're, we're told that there are some Pharisees, but that could mean there's a whole ladder of Pharisees of power and influence too in the, in the Jewish world. Just because you're a Pharisee doesn't mean you're in the upper echelon 
Okay, you could just be Pharisee Jimmy Joe Jew down the street with very little power. And so the reality is we haven't seen, but we've seen, we've seen governors. We, we, we've seen Roman centurions with great power and influence. But we haven't seen, a, the Bible mention a whole lot of like elite leaders in the Jewish community. Not saying there hasn't been any, but the fact that Luke points this out here, I think is highly significant. And so many believed and were baptized. And he, he stayed there. God comes to him with encouragement. And this means that Paul's got to be greatly discouraged. I can't imagine the discouragement. This is the other the image we have, too, is like Paul just always be... I mean, he's bold and confident, right? There's no questioning that. But we get this sense he's always like out there, just totally confident and emotionally unmoved by any tragedy or obstacle or whatever. And like... He gets beaten, just stands up and brushes it off and keeps moving on, right? Like, and I know nobody really believes that literally intentionally, but that's probably like some foggy default image that we have of him by the way that we've grown up in the church where Paul's been put on a pedestal. Um, Paul had to be incredible. If God is, how many times have we seen God come to him in vision? He's mentioned a couple of visions where God has spoken to him. But since the road to Damascus, we haven't really seen him encounter visions that much. But for God to come to him in a vision here and speak words of encouragement, and the whole context of the message is, don't be discouraged, I will be with you, I won't let the harm come to you. you like That means that there had to be some worrying and depression and anxiety. And, and you can't go through what he has gone through and, and be human and not that affect you emotionally to not be discouraged. I mean, Spurgeon was a phenomenal preacher and an incredible contribution to the spread of the gospel through North America. And yet he spent a lot of his time curled up in his bed in absolute depression and couldn't get out on multiple occasions. And talk about a modern, very well-known, successful preacher who's changed whether you realize it or not, change the face of North America when it comes to theology and Christianity and the gospel and reformed ideas. And, and yet he struggled with depression because of people being against him and opposing him and, 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 and not being successful at different times and, 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 stand, and even preaching against the, the modern movements that were happening in the church. And even his own Christians were like, well, you're a full of crap. You're just exaggerating. You're just being negative to people. And then being right five years later. And it just completely almost wiping out the church in North America. These, these false worldviews. And depression is a part of this. We talked about this in the First Testament. How many of the prophets were just depressed? And even borderline suicidal. Um, just because of just how hard it was. And there's going to be other times where God is going to come to Paul and say, don't be discouraged, I'm with you. And, and this is a reality. This is a reality that Luke is not focusing on because that's not the point. It's not a biography of Paul. And the Bible very rarely goes into the emotions of its people. I don't exactly know why. God doesn't do that, um, but it doesn't. And, but at the same time, because it's not the promise, don't miss these. Don't miss these things. Because it humanizes Paul, and it also helps us realize we're not alone. And our discouragements, and our struggles, and our needs for God to just come and say, please, just tell me everything is okay despite this. And th this is what we're seeing here. And so he was there for a long time. 
chapter 18, verse 12.